the Jewish views on the BRCA1 gene mutation. We hear the extraordinary story of Gabby Jacobs, who's undergone a voluntary double mastectomy to avoid cancer. Confessions of a Rabbi. Rabbi Jonathan Remain's new book gives an insight into his working world. And we find out why Ought UK is twinning bar and bat mitzvah children with their counterparts in Lithuania. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. In Israel, the Knesset has passed a law that will ban entry to the country to foreigners who publicly call for a boycott of the Jewish state or its settlements. Roy Folkman from the Kulanu Party stressed that the measure was meant to target groups rather than individuals. The Interior Ministry will be able to make exceptions such as for foreigners with residency permits. Last week, a tourist visa was denied to an American employee of Human Rights Watch, citing the organization's alleged anti-Israel bias. A young Jewish woman from Boreham Wood, who had a double mastectomy six months ago to avoid getting a deadly cancer that runs in her family, has urged all Jews, including men, to get tested. Gabby Jacobs, who's 28, heard her mother Alison speak in Parliament about her ongoing battle with breast and ovarian cancer as part of Ovarian Cancer Awareness Week. Alison, who's 55, was deeply upset when she learnt she had passed on a genetic mutation to Gabby, but pleased that her daughter acted swiftly after tests confirmed she was a carrier. The supermarket chain Morrison's has apologised to a Jewish man from Essex who said he was laughed at when he complained that he found kosher food in the Loughton store placed next to, and in some cases touching, pork products. Mitchell Cohen's first complaint in mid-February didn't rectify the problem, but after seeing the display hadn't altered by last week, he took photos, after which the store said it would put it right. The chief executive of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust has said there's been an astonishing increase in the number of local activities around the country which taught people about the horrors of genocides in Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia and Darfur. Organisers of Holocaust Memorial Day, which was on 27th of January this year, said events took place in prisons, schools, museums and libraries. And finally, a Holocaust survivor has revealed he's gay after what he described as 90 years in the closet. Roman Blank escaped to America where he married and had two children, five grandchildren and one great-grandchild. But now, at the age of 96, and having kept his secret for many decades, he now wants to find a companion to spend the final years of his life with. And that's the news. It's over to the sport now from Andrew. Thank you, Viv. The first silverware of the Jewish football season has been won after L'Equipe were crowned Division 2 champions. Marking their 10-year anniversary with their first ever trophy, player-manager Nicholas Stern said, To claim our first win in this special year means so much to everyone. Israel are through to the quarter-finals of the World Baseball Classic in South Korea after they won their first three pool games. Marking their debut in the competition, they've stunned the baseball world by beating the hosts, Chinese Taipei and the Netherlands. They've also been somewhat boosted by the presence of their team mascots, otherwise known as their mensch on the bench. And finally, junior fencer Vera Konevsky won gold for Israel at the European Junior Championships in Bulgaria. The 17-year-old said, I'm happy that everything fell into place. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it, we have a rare treat for you today. My goodness, we have not one, not two, but three people. We have editor Richard Ferrer, we have supplements editor Bridget Grant, and we have features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you all. Let us start off, though, with the front page. And the UK Jewish community have been blasting a decision made by the Israeli government to ban BDS supporters. Trump's now revised travel ban was accused of being indiscriminate. And that is exactly the term used by the border deputies this week to describe a new indiscriminate ban that Israel has rolled out. This is a ban to control the people that come in and out of the country. They're now going to block entry to anyone supporting BDS, boycotts, divestments and sanctions, anyone that supports any sort of campaign against the country, even if that person doesn't privately support it, but works for a company that does. Now, the interesting thing here is, and the thing that's made it our front page, is the categorical condemnation amongst the community. And you can reel off lots and lots of organisations, name the top two, the Jewish Leadership Council, Board of Deputies, amongst many others that have said categorically, as categorically as condemnation can come, that this is the wrong move at the wrong time. And it's only reinforcing Israel's enemies and doing nothing to help them either on the international stage or at home. Well, there's one very obvious problem with this. And Fran, I believe that it's a question that you and I both raise about this. Yes, I couldn't really understand before learning a bit more about this story why, if you're a boycotter, an open boycotter, why you would even want to go to Israel anyway. Surely you're against Israel, you're, you're boycotting Israel. So that's the logical conclusion. The other thought that springs to mind is surely the only way to address this issue of boycotting is to let boycotters in, to give them dialogue, to let them see the country for themselves, to see the situation for themselves. And, you know, surely that would be the best way forward, not banning them. But as you rightly identify, are they really going to be the first in line to book a plane ticket to go to Israel anyway? So why would they go and see for themselves? The problem with most boycotters is that they've got absolutely no idea what Israel's all about. It it does smack of self-imposed isolation and every country obviously has the right to ban foreigners that, that dispute its existence, its place on the map. But it does seem like a, an incredibly difficult own goal. And, and as Bridget was mentioning just off air, it does seem to be the Trump influence only weeks after Bibi and he met. Well, I dare say, Bridget, that you've been sitting there looking as if you're about to erupt at this story. So, I mean, what do you make of this potential ban on BDSs? The reason that people would go there is for business purposes. It's amazing what people can overlook in order to do business. And in Israel, particularly with all the technology they've got going on, there will be lots of people and countries that would happily go there to negotiate those kind of deals without necessarily wanting to support them. I mean, everyone's happy to use Israel's equipment and still not like Israel. But I think that you're right when you say that, that the way to see it is to go there and let the boycotters in. Because I, having not been there for 28 years myself until December, I was utterly amazed at how the, the fluidity of the place, the way that people work side by side, is the thing that the boycotters need to see. Let's bring it a little closer to home, shall we? Because JFS, or the Jewish Free School, to those who don't realise what I'm talking about, are making cutbacks, and they are also in the news this week. 
slightly delicate time, one might argue, yeah. to be making cutbacks. I, I speak as a former JFSer myself, 1982 to 1987. Hello, Mr. Partridge, if you're listening. A th- <laughs> a th- a th- he may still be there. I, I think. Yeah, he listens regularly. Yes. A thriving standard setting JFS, the biggest European Jewish school is a good thing for all of us. It's a good thing in terms of the future of our community and generations to come. And it's fair to say that my old school has gone through the ringer in recent days and years. It last year went through an Ofsted report that pushed it up to good. I think it was requiring improvement previous to that. It's had its long-serving headmaster, Jonathan Miller, moved uh, aside for Deborah Lipkin. And now it has announced uh, wholesale redundancies. Now, the numbers being talked about went up to 40 odd at some points during the week it's now come down to and it's the number we reported it'll be about 15 staff redundant mostly non-teaching staff now they're saying it's financial requirements and it's not going to impact on the overall academic standards of the school but whenever it comes to education and I think the guys here will back me up education along with health seem to be the two big things that really drive the community's interest in the Jewish news. So we've had a lot of response from teachers and parents and mostly anonymous, many concerned, but the school is very keen to reassure our readers that quality will not be affected. You see, speaking as a non-JFSer myself, I find that probably one of the problems looking as an outsider to JFS has been the sheer growth over the years. JFS obviously famously moved from Camden to its current site in Kingsbury because it just completely outgrew it. And now in this current building, it just as soon as you walk into JFS, you're just overwhelmed with the enormity of the building. However, one would assume that prices go up cost of running the business, let's not forget it is a business, go up. And certain sacrifices probably at some stage do have to be made, especially in such troubling times. Maybe what they should have done, I don't know how it works, but obviously with a lot of Jewish schools, you give make a voluntary contribution. I don't know how that, because I haven't got a child at senior school, so I don't know. But if that's the case, maybe before making the redundancies, they should have potentially put that out to the parent PTA and talk to them about increasing voluntary contributions with a view to being able to keep staff. I think they've got an extra class coming into, is it year seven now? It was the first year back in the day. In September, I think they've actually got an extra year coming in. So there will be extra resources that are going to be required from September. So quite how that will tally remains to be seen. Now, Fran, I understand that you have been learning about an Iranian war hero. Yes, his name was Abdul Hussein Sadari. He was an Iranian consul who was operating in Paris during the Second World War. And not legally, may I say, actually what happened was when Iran signed a treaty with Britain and Russia in 1941, he was actually ordered to return home. So essentially he'd been stripped of his diplomatic immunity. But he decided to stay on in France at huge personal cost to himself. And he forged passports for Iranian and non-Iranian Jews, as well as non-Jews. And it's believed that he had at least 500 blank passports in his safe in the embassy. And potentially those passports could have been used by more than one person within a family. So we could be looking at thousands that he actually potentially saved. There's a filmmaker named Madia Zardini, who has now made a documentary about his life called Sardari's Enigma. 
And she has actually gone all over the world scouring for documents to try and prove the great risk that he put his own life in. Can I just add as well that he actually lied to the Germans. He made up a lie trying to get exemption for Jews living in Paris and said that they were called Jaguten. He made it up. It doesn't exist. But he tried to convince the Nazis they weren't proper Jews and therefore they should be exempted from the Aryan laws. Anyway, so she has gone all over the world finding documents proving that he risked his life and she's trying to get him recognised at Yad Vashem as righteous among the nations. I feel almost ashamed that I've never heard of him. If people want more information and want to read that article, what page is it on? That's on page 25. Wow, we look forward to hearing more about him, I'm sure. Just finally, and I mean really quickly with this, why are fish and chips in the paper? Not that they're not normally served in paper, obviously. Yes, normally they are. Normally that is what the Jewish news is used for, as we all know. But this week we've got fish and chips inside the paper because the best of British takeaways, which is funded by Cherry Healy, is starting on BBC Two. In the very first episode, she looks at the Jewish roots of fish and chips. Obviously, it started with fried fish brought together with lovely potato chips by a man named Joseph Mallon, who was a Jewish immigrant from Romania. And thank God to him, we have this lovely takeaway now. And just finally, we couldn't possibly finish this particular part of the programme without establishing what our favourite orders are. Rich, what would you say your fish and chips order is? I'd go... Oh, I'm a, I'm a traditionalist. Cod in Mutz and Mill. I'm just surprised at how many foods are actually quite... Jewish. I mean, it's extraordinary. Shakshuka is a, a Jewish food, isn't it? Like, Israeli dish that is, and how delicious it is. Mm. But a bit eggy. It's got an egg in it, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It's got a, a big egg in the middle of loads of tomatoes. It's tomato. not nicer than fish and chips yeah. in mozza meal. It has to be in mozza meal. I hate. Don't you hate batter? I hate batter. It's got to be for me haddock in mozza meal with mushy peas. Lots of vinegar. Oh dear, that, that was going so well until he said that. Okay, well, there you go. I think we better leave it there, but we are salivating now. So thank you all very much indeed. That's where we'll have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. Don't forget you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. BRCA1 is a human gene widely attributed to causing types of cancer. It also happens to be highly prevalent within the Jewish community. Imagine finding out that you're a carrier and then having to make a life-changing decision. That's exactly what happened to Gabby Jacobs from Hertfordshire. She underwent a voluntary double mastectomy in order to avoid the highly probable chance of obtaining the disease. Her mother, Alison, is battling ongoing breast and ovarian cancer, and she spoke in Parliament last week as part of Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. I'm delighted to say that I had the chance to catch up with both Gabby and Alison, and I started by asking Gabby to tell us why she undertook such a massive decision. I found out I had the gene about a year and a half ago. I kind of knew... I had it I always sort of knew so that way when I found out it wasn't such a shock and I knew straight away that if I did have it that I would want to do the surgeries because I don't want to end up like my mum going through such terrible treatment so I knew that it was the right decision to do. Well Alison let's let's bring Mm. you in at that stage because perhaps you can explain just exactly what you are going through. Okay yeah so in July 2014 I started off going for surgery for breast cancer and it was during this surgery that they discovered 
that something seriously else was going on. And they discovered I also had ovarian cancer. If I wind back the clock eight months before, I was having symptoms, but it wasn't particularly picked up, which is a very typical thing of ovarian cancer, that I was told I had diverticulitis, I had lots of things going on. So it all came to a head in the July 2014, and it was quite a shocking diagnosis because I was very seriously ill at that stage. And that's the very first time we had been told about BRCA. And do you mind sort of maybe sort of saying how you are now? How are you faring at the moment? Yeah, so at the moment, so I, I had six months of what I would class extremely harsh chemotherapy. And then uh, since then, so that would have gone from the January 2015, I've been on something called Avastin, which is classed as maintenance chemotherapy. So I have that... That's an infusion still every three weeks with another tablet called Examistain. I've been on that for a good two years now. And I think, considering everything, I'm doing pretty well. well you so. look, if you don't mind me saying, you do look absolutely <laughs> amazing. And you would never know that you are no. going through what you're going through. But Gabby, I'm guessing that sort of for you, watching your arm go through this gruelling treatment mm. must have been your main motivation yeah. to do something about definitely, it. Definitely, definitely. Like at the beginning when the chemo was so strong and it was terrible. And why would anyone want to be in that position? Like do something about it and you don't have to go through that. Well, you are obviously quite headstrong to put yourself in a position where you are mentally prepared to deal with. However, yeah. there will be people listening who say that undertaking surgery that, let's be honest, as it stands, isn't necessary, mm. is a massive step. And therefore, why would you put yourself through that? But I guess you've got the answer in the form of your mum sitting next to you, really, exactly, haven't you? Exactly, exactly. Like, I, mean, I know if my mum knew she would have had it and she wouldn't be in this position... That's really the whole point in this is that with the BRCA, you can have preventative surgery and I was never given the opportunity. So I would urge anybody to find out if they are BRCA, you can test and you can prevent cancer. And it's, it's like knowledge is power. It's the most amazing thing that today we can prevent it. So that's why we want to speak out, to give people knowledge, because it wasn't out there for me. Well, it must have come as some sort of sense of relief to you when you knew, Alison, that Gabby was doing something in a bid to try and hopefully prevent having to go through the treatment that you're having to go through now. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. I mean, I could not make Gabriella have a mastectomy. I mean, I couldn't force her to do it. So the fact that she chose to do it, it sort of made, made me feel at peace that I knew she would be safe because it was my force of driving to keep my daughter safe because we knew what would happen if she didn't have preventative surgeries. And Gabby, you must have obviously umdenard quite a lot before doing this. It's not a decision that one takes lightly, mm, I'm guessing. And therefore, who was it that, apart from your mum, that did you discuss it with any friends and what kind of reaction did you get? Yeah, well, I discussed it with all my closest friends. I mean, at, the big, at, at first, I was very, very private about it. I only spoke about it with my closest friends, but they all knew that it was the right decision, definitely, to do. I mean, at first I wanted to get it done straight away, but my doctor, my surgeon said, no, you know, wait a year, enjoy your married life and then do it. 
So now I've done it and I haven't looked back. So, well, of course, you are recently married. So, yes. we should say muscles off for that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Alison, you have, as a result of it, obviously, the two of you actually have become very proactive in trying to raise awareness of BRCA1. So, maybe could you tell people listening who maybe don't understand quite what BRCA1 mutation is, what it actually is and how it manifests itself? Okay, so if you carry the BRCA1 gene mutation, it means that first of all you have a 50-50 chance in passing it on to any of your children, which is male or female. And as a female carrier, you actually have a 85% lifetime risk of developing breast cancer and a 60% lifetime risk of developing ovarian cancer. So it's a very high risk as a female carrier, which is why they say you should have preventative surgery. And you were saying about how it affects, some might be surprised to hear it also affects men as well. Mm. Mm. Do we know how that affects men exactly is it the same is it obviously is it, it obviously wouldn't be a variant but is it breast no, cancer but as well? yeah yes a man can get breast cancer it's it's a much lower risk but a man can also develop prostate cancer and melanoma and pancreatic cancer and this is quite prevalent within the jewish community isn't it for some reason it seems mm. to be a genetic condition mm. that affects not exclusively but primarily jewish people is that yeah. right one in 40. It's one in 40, mm-hmm. us against one in 800 of the general population. And the first time that you learnt about this, I'm assuming, was when you weren't well, Alison, is that right? We, yes, I think we sort of picked up a little bit when we saw Angelina Jolie, but it actually, I knew that it had come down her maternal side. So with, for me, it came down my paternal side and nobody sort of had picked up on that because I had a paternal aunt that had died at 52. I don't um, think anyone would think it could come no. from the male. And that's what we want to get out there, that it can come from the male. It, it's like, who would think that a man can pass ovarian and breast cancer onto his daughter? Mm. It's just something you don't really think is logical. Well, it certainly is something that I never considered. So no. I thank you for at least educating me and also <laughs> anyone else listening. <laughs> Gabby, what would you say to anyone who is listening who perhaps maybe fears that they are a carrier and therefore, even if they are a carrier and that they've say they have been proven that they do carry BRCA1, but they are umming and ahhing about preventative surgery, you're obviously the other side of that mm. now. What would you? What advice would you give to them? I'd say do it. Obviously, get tested. And if you are positive, you know, don't be don't be scared. You know, like I obviously it is a scary thing to think about, but it's honestly the best thing I have ever done. And you know, you save your own life. So, you know, why wouldn't you want to do that? Well, I'm guessing that you must have this overwhelming sense of relief. Oh my God, I'm so relieved. Like every day I'd wake up and I'd be scared if there's a lump or anything. And now I wake up and I've just, like a big weight's been lifted off my shoulders. Two remarkable members of the community there, Gabby Jacobs and Alison de Gaulle, telling me how the BRCA1 gene mutation has impacted on their lives. Best of luck to them. If you have been affected by what you've heard and would like more information, then you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll find links to various organisations. 
You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by community volunteer Andy Lucas and founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks. They'll be discussing kosher products in secular supermarkets. Plus, Diana Toman will be finding out more about Ort UK's B'nai Mitzvah twinning program. But first, what's said to a rabbi stays with a rabbi. We all know that. But in Jonathan Remain's new book, Confessions of a Rabbi, he gives us a preview into some of the strange and sometimes unbelievable situations he's had to deal with. Entertainment and culture editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to Rabbi Remain to find out more about his intriguing world. Kate started by asking him to tell us a little more about the contents of the book. It's really my experiences, partly as a rabbi and partly just someone who often meets people in the wider public, because although a lot of the incidents are from Maidenhead, many are not, because I sort of have dealings with people far and wide throughout the country, either because of the work I did for um, many, many years with the Mixed Face seminars in sort of not just London, but Leeds, Glasgow, Manchester, uh, Bristol. I was a prison chaplain, and therefore people in prison often have a lot of time on their hands and uh, tell me their stories, or because people uh, very often, if they hear or see me on the BBC, will then up or, or writing afterwards and, and, and chat and discuss things. So, and this is just the sort of the life of a congregational rabbi, which is very far from being just about prayers and telling someone whether chicken's kosher or not, but dealing with all the things that go right in life and also those that go wrong and some of the extraordinary things that happen to ordinary people in the course of their life. You must see people at their very worst times of their life and the humanity stripped bare. Has this made you a bit more of a cynic? Do you, do you see people differently? No, not cynical at all. Sometimes very sad when people either take wrong turns and get themselves into a really big mess and, or where actually they end up in a very lonely situation through or difficult situation through no fault of their own but just the way life is and life can be very unfair sometimes. And although it is sad... Actually, also, there are often solutions. Whether people take those solutions is another matter. And I suppose one of the particular sadnesses I sometimes have is that people often don't take solutions that are on offer, not because they're necessarily hard, but because they need a little bit of initiative or oomph or energy, and they just find they don't have it. And that's where synagogue can be enormously helpful, not necessarily to go and pray, but just to be a safe space where you can participate in social and cultural activities and feel safe and and, and whatever else is going wrong in your life or however cruel the rest of the world is, hopefully you get a warm welcome and a sense of being valued in your local synagogue. The title of your book, Confessions of a Rabbi, is actually quite funny because, I mean, as an amusing funny, we don't have the concept of, of the confessional, which is a Christian concept. First of all, I wanted to ask you what made you give the book that title and why don't we have a confessional in Judaism? The title um, is just something that came to my mind. I I don't know whether it's related or not, but I remember when I was a a teenager, there were a series of films starring Robin Asquith, who lived in the same town that I did um, in Ricelip in Middlesex. And it was Confessions of a Window Cleaner and Confessions of a a Dustman and and a whole series, a bit like the Carry On films. And I don't know, the title just stuck in my mind. But you're quite right, we don't have confession 
in the same way as in, the, say, the Catholic Church, where people go regularly. And not only do they go regularly and confess, but also the confessions are totally confidential. And if, for instance, if a Catholic priest is told during the confessional that someone is a paedophile and that they can't control it and that they will probably go on being a paedophile, that priest will not tell the police and not report the person. They may urge the person to hand themselves in, but if the person says no, then the priest will observe that confidence. And if the person comes to the court, the priest will not give any evidence against him. We don't have that, thankfully. I think it's an outrageous doctrine, and Judaism is much more sensible than that. But having said that, people do often share their issues, share their problems. And I suppose it shows how the, rab- the role of the rabbi is developing in, in many ways. And whereas he was initially a, a, just a teacher, now he's often has a pastoral role, or I should say she, because certainly in the reform and liberal movements, we have many women rabbis. And, and we have a pastoral role, a little bit like the sort of the vicar in the Church of England does. Some people who can relate to their rabbi will go and talk to him or her. Yes, because actually sometimes it is quite cathartic to express how you feel to want to offload and do you feel sort of dumped on sometimes in that way well maybe that's one of the roles of the rabbi but actually it's interesting as to why people come i mean sometimes people come just because they like the particular person and they feel they want to get some objective advice other times it's because he is the rabbi and therefore they want to know what judaism says about a particular issue whether they then abide by it's another matter but they just want to know what the jewish view is Sometimes they just feel guilty, and as you say, they want to offload, uh, to confess, to get it out of their system. Sometimes, more positively, they know they've done wrong, and they want to be told off, and, and they actually feel that they ought to be reprimanded. And then other times, and this is very Jewish, it's a way of letting go, saying, yes, you know, look, I, I messed up, but I, I'd like to apologize to make up for it in whatever way, and so that the past is not necessarily an albatross around your neck, and you can have a, a new start and a, a new beginning. Yes, Which, be- of course, we tend to do once a year at the High Holy Days, but, but, but there's no reason why you can't do any day the rest of the year. Did, do you find sometimes your congregants will ask you for very specific direction, whether they should marry X or Y, whether they should divorce, whether they should move home? In the olden days, the, the Rebbe was someone who you almost put everything to, to and let them almost decide on your lives. Uh, yes, which I don't think is very healthy, uh, because that sort of Rebbe figure was actually a guru figure. And although it's certainly wise to get advice and, and sometimes advice from different sources, I don't think it's right to put your future totally in the control of somebody else. And Rebbe Guru doesn't matter whether they're Jewish or not. It's not healthy. The rabbi's role is twofold. Firstly, yes, to say what Jewish tradition advises in these situations, but also to get the person to look at themselves objectively, to see what the options are, to work out the consequences of what they do or might not do, and approach it as sensibly as possible. And, and sometimes the traditional answer isn't necessarily the right answer, because you have to deal with the pragmatics and the practicalities of that particular person in that particular situation. What would you say is your favourite part of being a rabbi? What do you enjoy most? Well, it's the fact that actually no day is ever the same. And it's totally flexi time and there's nothing boring, nothing nine to five. You know, I, I might start off the morning doing a school assembly and then do a hospital visit, then write an article, uh, then go and visit somebody at their home, then do a class, um, or none of them, um, or in a different order, or something completely different. 
um, and it's it's a, 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 it's an enormous variety. So if, it, you know, I really never know quite how the day is going to end when I start it, uh, which is uh, makes every day very challenging and exciting. Hopefully, also, it's, uh, one can actually do some good and, and actually help people who, who sometimes lost their way in life and uh, want a lifeline uh, flung their way. I suppose the flip side of that is that you're always on call. You're always available if, if you haven't got fixed hours. Yes, but I find that people do respect my privacy. Um, and um, yes, I work hard and I work long hours. Um, and the other day, someone rang me at seven in the morning and said, oh, I just want to catch you before you go to work. And someone else rang 11 o'clock that night saying, oh, I thought I'd catch you because I know you've just finished. Um, and 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. is quite a long day. But, you know, it doesn't happen all like, like that. And there's also many fabulous parts to being a, a, a rabbi. And I can thoroughly recommend it as a, as a wonderful job for a nice Jewish boy or girl. Fascinating, isn't it? Who knew that the world of a rabbi could be that enthralling? We all knew it was fairly interesting, but I don't know if we knew it was that much. If you would like more information on Rabbi Romain's book, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Speaking of books, now's a really good time to tell you about the special podcast that's available from The Jewish Views. It's all about Jewish Book Week 2017. Kate and Diana went along to speak to some of the authors and the organisers and the attendees. And if you would like to listen to it, you'll also find that on our website as well. In just a moment will be this week's schmooze. Remember, we live stream the schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. That all-important address is coming up, but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read out those comments as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. And you can find all the details on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, 10 B'nai Mitzvot children have just returned from Ort UK's twinning project. The programme was designed to partner students up with a counterpart in Vilnius in Lithuania. Its aim was to help them explore their heritage, and community editor Diana Toman has been finding out more about it for us by speaking to two of the children, Ben Mason and Abby Broido, as well as one of the organisers, Anthea Jackson. Diana started by asking Anthea to tell us how the whole idea started. It was my dream about 18 months ago. I had always wanted to have a programme that could connect children here in the UK with our art schools in the world and the art network. Because you're part of art, aren't you? Yes, yes. I work for the British arm of of art, which is called Art UK. And what happened at the end of February? This year was our inaugural trip to Lithuania, to Vilnius in Lithuania. We twinned children here in the UK with children from our art school, the Art Shalom Alechem School in Vilnius, Lithuania. And this was the first of this type of trip. This is the Art UK Bar Bat Mitzvah Twinning Program is something that is running, it's a pilot year. It's running in the Muswell Hill Show community And we're doing it for nine months and the children in the UK meet monthly. And halfway through the programme, which was half term this February, we took the children and their families to meet their counterparts in the school. 
have they yet reached their bar bat some mitzvah? Of them, yeah, some, some of them, yeah. Yeah, some of the girls have had their bat mitzvahs. The girls will be all having their bat mitzvahs this current year. And the boys generally will be having their bar mitzvahs towards the end of this year and going into 2018. But they're all in year seven. Or they're all in the same year. There and here. In the school in Lithuania, it's slightly different. I think they're slightly younger. They're slightly younger, but they are all going to have a bar bat mitzvah too. That's great, Anthea. Thank you very much indeed. And now let's talk to two of the children who actually went on the trip, Abby and Ben. Ben, can you tell us a little bit about your twin? Well, I actually had three, so... You had three twins? Yeah. That's triplets. <laughs> My twins are Marek, Martin and Noah. And they're all about your age? Yeah. What did you like most about them? Okay, so they all seem to like sport a lot, which that's a thing we have in common because I'm very big on sport. They were all my age, which helps. Did you have time to actually play anything? Yeah. We did? Yeah, they, they gave us time to play a bit of football and basketball. Let's turn to you, Abby. Have you got triplets as well or have you just got twins? No, I just had one twin. Had what, what was her name? Eleanor pretty name. Well, she will say your age. Yeah, she was a month younger than me. And tell me a little bit about Eleanor. She was very similar to me and very easy to talk to and our conversations lasted quite a long time. And what we did you two have in common? We both liked books a lot. We both liked dance. We both liked art and we liked the same songs. Really? And we talked a lot over email. So tell me what you did as a group then. I gather you, you, did you go skating? I've read that there, were, that there was a frozen lake that you went on. Yes, but that was without our twins. So on the day we were about to leave, we went to a town, to a castle, and there was a frozen lake. We walked across the lake to get to the castle. It was really slippery, but it was really fun. Nobody fell in? No. <laughs> Good, right. What else did you do? We visited the castle and we had a snowball fight. We went through the town a bit. And we visited the graveyard of all the Jews that died in the war. And Did you? Yes. That must have been very moving for yeah, you. Yeah, it was. And I imagine if you, if you were having snowball fights, the, it was pretty chilly out there, wasn't it? Oh, it was, it was snowing a lot. It was snowing a lot. It was all very wet. Because this was the end of February, wasn't it? Right. I've read, Ben, that you were packing bags in the Marks and Spencers in Temple Fortune. What were you doing that for? Well, we were doing that to raise money for art and we were helping people packing packing their bags at the till and uh, we handed out leaflets and badges and stuff and they would hopefully give us a donation towards the charity for in return. And did they? Most of them, yeah. Most of them did. Yeah. You must have been smiling nicely. Or perhaps you were packing their bags very efficiently <laughs> and they handed over some money. Have you any idea how much you raised altogether? No, but it looked like quite a lot. <laughs> Had a lot of money. Yeah. Right. Abby, tell me what you feel you got out of the whole experience. I found out more about my past and how my family lived back in the war. And I found out how people in Lithuania, how they lived differently to us and how their bat mitzvahs are different to how mine is going to be and just generally how different it is from England. And you, Ben? Obviously, it's a very different culture. The food is very different. And I learned a lot about how they live there and how it's 
completely different to how we live. God, what an amazing experience. I don't ever remember being given the chance to do anything like that at the time of my for Don't get me wrong, I wasn't a deprived child. I'm just merely stating a fact. Ben Mason and Abby Broido, as well as Anthea Jackson, the Community Outreach Manager for Ort UK, talking to Community Editor Diana Toman there about Ort UK's twinning programme. For more information, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Tony Homerberg and me today is a community volunteer, Andy Lucas, and founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks. The subject today is based on an item we heard in the news with Viv a little earlier on. Morrison's Supermarket was forced to apologise this week after a Jewish customer was laughed at when he complained about pork pies being placed next to kosher food. It's important that we don't make this conversation about Morrisons who aren't here to defend themselves, but I should point out that a Morrison spokesperson has said, we'd like to thank the customer for bringing this to our attention and apologise. The store has incorrectly filled the shelves and will put it right. The question for this discussion surely has to be, if you're that religious or kosher, why are you buying such products from a secular store in the first place? Laura, let's start with you. Should customers be complaining in this sort of scenario, or should secular shops do more to accommodate customers with religious needs? I think that I hadn't heard this story till just now, but I think what strikes me is that so many people just don't know that they are offending people. I think mostly people genuinely want to not offend people and they want to make people feel comfortable and they want me to to accommodate people's particular cultural or religious or national needs. I'm inclined to give everyone the benefit of the doubt on this one. And assuming that the kosher goods are wrapped and they are sealed, I'm not quite sure that it matters that much well, where they were, are. Sorry to interrupt you, but they were, they were not only wrapped, there was a glass partition, partition between them. And also, also the non-kosher products were wrapped as well, yes. and sealed. So there was no cross-contamination. It's just that people had to walk past one to get to the other. And I think the Jewish ones complained because they had to walk past the non-kosher stuff, or, or the, the pork sausages and the, and the bacon and everything else, to get to their, their kosher section. To well, I, I'm much happier that the Jewish people feel happy shopping in the non-Jewish shop than that they don't. Because if the Jewish community can only feel comfortable shopping in a kosher shop, then we are encouraging even more segregation than we've already got now. And that must be a bad thing. So I would encourage people, and that's not that I've got anything against kosher shops mm. at all, but I think that... How wonderful that non-Jewish shops stock kosher food. How wonderful that they have it out on display and that everybody feels comfortable going and picking it up. And long may that last. Or not comfortable in this case. In this case. So, So who's to blame? Would you say the supermarkets are to blame for 
being no, I, less no, sensitive no, I, I, or I, I, not? I don't think so. If you go into a waitress shop... It's the same. No. It's not. If you go into a waitress shop... You've got an area. There is a little area which has the Jewish food in it, or the Jewish... Not just food, uh, things like the candles and the lights and everything. But, but what about the, stu- the, the what about the? I mean, on, on the one that I saw, this Morrison's one, it was they were talking about a cold cabinet, where you had the cold, right. you know, co- the Gilbert's meats and and all that sort of things, and I guess the wolf sausages or whatever they, you know, they are. But you've on got the other that, side. You've got that in most of the big supermarkets, and. They are always separated, and if somebody, if one of their staff has made a mistake or not realised what what they've been doing and done that in ac- you know, an accident, which, which is why I won- is, wondered if Morrison's had been not done, they hadn't done it deliberately, no, it but wasn't. they just did it unknowingly. Yes, like, I'm it, sure they, they did because they, they also they also apologised. Yes, but so, they haven't actually done anything wrong because no. there was this glass. Partition, Partition. Yeah, we, which actually separates the two. Yes. I, so, I guess they wanted to see another something else in between, you know. To, it, it comes back or to, even it comes on back to, uh, it comes back to ignorance, doesn't it? Mm. And it comes back to how prepared are we to hear other people's needs? How prepared are we to accommodate them? How prepared, you know, laughing at people because they're different is not okay. It's not acceptable. And, no. and I think those are the issues here, much more importantly than whether the, the meat was next to the... There's another aspect of this, surely. I mean, why should, an, obviously, an Orthodox Jew walk into a completely non-Jewish shop and get annoyed because the kosher food is in a different department but next door to non-kosher food i mean it's nonsense to go to morrison's and complain about it i quite agree actually because i just think that if you're going into a normal supermarket whether you're orthodox or non-orthodox whatever and obviously this person was extremely orthodox you know, then they have to expect that sort of thing because it's not geared specifically for them. It is geared for whoever, general public, whoever goes into the shop. And therefore, as long as it's separated by a partition and nothing is put into there that is untoward, I can't see that there should be a problem. And if they have a problem, they shouldn't be shopping I there. Th- I think the Orthodox people here were probably wrong to make a complaint. They're not touching the food. They've only got to look at it. you know. And, and then if you don't like to look at it, then don't go into these shops to buy your food. Exactly. But the whole thing here That's is about tolerance of one another, isn't it? It's, it's about... It's about the ability of the shop to understand and to hear the needs of the people and their kosher food. It's about the needs of the Orthodox Jewish people to go in and recognise that actually maybe they didn't do it to to upset them. Maybe they didn't do it deliberately and they just made a mistake. Exactly. And even as you say, it's not even such a mistake because it, it wasn't on top of it. It wasn't sort of mingling in it. It was next to it. Exactly. I've got a message on on Facebook. Rebecca says that if they were placed next to halal products, nobody would be laughing. And Ben says some kosher rules emphasise the perception of cross-contamination as well as the prevention of it. But you wouldn't get cross-contamination if if both products are wrapped. And would anybody be laughing if it was halal? I don't know. This sounds also to me like such a North West London problem. Because if you're living in an area where there's very few Jewish people and your shop 
stocks, kosher goods, I think you'd have a very different attitude. And you'd be much more grateful to them for thinking about your needs as a particular group who have specific if, if it was, requirements. If it wasn't in North London, northwest mm-hmm. London, if it was out of London in the kosher section, the people shopping in there wouldn't be that orthodox. Because, I mean, they're not, not as we would think Orthodox from North West well, London. It, well, it depends, wow. because if it's in Manchester or Bournemouth or somewhere I'm, like I'm that. I was thinking more of outer London, it's more of somewhere like Reading or... It certainly occurs to me there's a shop in St John's Wood, which is, it was at one time, a Jewish food shop. But it wasn't a kosher mm. Jewish food shop, but 99% of the people who go in there are Jewish. Yes. Yeah. And they sell every sort of thing in it. And they don't even have glass partitions. And I've seen it in that shop. So, I mean, there you are. But would you get, yes. would you get with the, what we would call the Northwest London Orthodox Jew going into that particular shop? I've never seen it. No, exactly. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. So. But that's fine too. You know, some people want food that is traditionally Jewish but that's not kosher mm. and, and and what's wrong with that so it's just a matter of accepting that or traditionally people, Jewish that is kosher but not necessarily going to a Jewish delicatessen to buy your food so they would go to a supermarket maybe some people yeah, feel but actually actually come to think of it while, while you're talking surely a deeply religious ultra religious Jew would not walk into a shop like well, Morrison's. any of them. Yes, like Morrison's or Tesco or any of them. They wouldn't go uh, in there. Well, yes, they would. Yeah, yes, they, they would. would, especially when it comes to things like Pesach and stuff like that. If they don't know about the Jewish warehouse type of place that's on the A41. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a very big cost issue here because kosher food's expensive. Mm. And why shouldn't people who keep kosher, why shouldn't they be able to buy their fruit and their vegetables and their tins? Why shouldn't they be able to buy them from Tesco's or from a big supermarket that is relatively low cost? And I think that to to expect people because they want to keep kosher to have to shop in the most expensive shops is not being reasonable of us. No, that's right. That's right. You do see, you do see Orthodox. I mean, if you go to Tesco's, say Tesco's in Boreham Wood, which is a really it, big Tesco, is there a lot of Orthodox Jews that's going? That's right. Well, of course, if you go to Waitrose uh, at Spring Cross, yeah. there are always, always, be, you know, sort of Haredi and, mm. and what have you walking around there. Actually, I was once told by somebody some time ago, but they said to me, we always go, and I think they were being serious, we always go to either Tesco or Marks and Spencers because they began as Jewish shops. <laughs> 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 and Support, supporting the community. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Can we do that? But it's, it's actually, it's, I, I personally think, and I'm speaking purely personally, it's an utterly ridiculous thing to do for any sort of Jew, Orthodox or otherwise, to go in and complain to these shops if they think that they're not putting Jewish food in the right place. I, I also think it depends how they complained. What were their words? How, what was their attitude? How did they say it? What was their intonation, etc., etc. But I have actually been into one of the supermarkets, and I, I did complain once because I found in the kosher section there was something that was completely trafe. You know, it was 
pork sausages or something, but it was on top of the kosher stuff. Somebody had obviously put it there, just walked past and put it there. And I said, well, you know, their staff should be aware and looking around because it was in a a Jewish area um, and I said you know that is not acceptable oh, that, you know, no, that, that sort of thing isn't acceptable, yeah, it is acceptable. but all of this is a wonderful opportunity either to moan and to say how disgraceful or it's a wonderful opportunity to say well we need to learn about each other's culture mm. and I, and I come right. back to that but it seems to me to be a good thing in a way that we're having this conversation and we are Indeed. exploring the fact that most people don't know what kosher is most people don't know what halal is and actually if you're working in a supermarket in a multicultural area like london you need to know yes actually yes. it's yes. just occurred to me i don't think i've ever seen in any shop halal food in Tesco's or Marks and Spencer's yes. or any yes. of Morrison, no, there are. Morrison's in Collingdale. Yes. Morrison's in Collingdale. Morrison's in Collingdale. It's got a big house. It's got a very it's got a halal it's got butcher. A, yeah, exactly. Mm. Oh, that's good. A, yes, it's that's got good. a big halal butcher. When it first opened, I said, Well, where's your kosher stuff? And they said, Oh. And I said, Well, if you've got a halal butcher, why don't you have a kosher butcher? Mm. Which would have been much more difficult because obviously we need a Shoma and they obviously don't have the same level. They said, well, we'd think, they would think about it. And this goes far, far wider than this as well because when you go to the supermarket now, you've got foods from all around the world. Mm. Absolutely. From all sorts of different cultures and different backgrounds. And one of, again, the, the beauties of living in London the multicultural Absolutely. society. It's the choice it? and the, the variety, and not just the choice and variety of food, but the choice and variety of people that that reflects. And aren't we lucky? We are yes, very lucky. very lucky. Absolutely. Extremely. But we're such small numbers, aren't we? I mean, this is why with, with the halal goods being sold in the supermarkets, I, I, I think, I don't know how many millions of people in this country that eat halal foods there are but we've got what 275,000 Jewish people in this country not of all who would eat kosher but you know so how can we expect the supermarkets and the the non-Jewish shops to know about our culture and also the positive things about our culture because you know there are positive things about eating kosher food and I think that what's a shame is that in this example this man was, I mean, I, I know nothing about the case, so mm. I'm only saying on what you've been telling me around this table, but but complaining about the the way that they're stocking the kosher food. And actually, you know, they didn't think they were doing anything bad. No, no. And, and it's not good to be complaining about something when somebody's trying to do something nice for you. Yeah. And perhaps he should offer to go in and show them how it should be done if he's not happy with it. I'm sure they would accept that. Mm. You know, if he said to the manager, look, let me what, show you. What do you think? Do you, do you think the, the best din has a responsibility to educate shops? Would it be in a sense? Be? In a sense, they it's do. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But we tend not to. Yeah, all right. Well, let's Absolutely. just leave it there, then, I think. But my thanks to our guest, community volunteer, Andy Lucas, and founder of Mitzvah Day Law Remarks. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. And you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter we are at jewishviewsuk. 
And it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi James Barton from Share Tzedek, North London Reform Synagogue. As I get older, I have the feeling that we are ever more frequently and insistently being encouraged to be, well, nasty. I don't mean negative in the general sense of what a lot of people call negative energy, which is more about being pessimistic and critical. This is something more specific. It's about being critical, yes, but unpleasantly critical about our fellow human beings. For a few decades, much journalism, whether in print or online, seems to be devoted to so-called comment, often harsh and personal. Likewise, the huge role now played by reality television, competitions, contests, covering every field of human endeavor, from baking to genealogy, repetitiously induces us to be unkind about others. And websites, blogs, and vlogs often feature pages of truly vicious invective, masquerading as comment. Articulating such suspicions brings with it the risk, as the years go by, of sounding unduly critical and negative oneself. In the case of an aging man, turning into a curmudgeon, a grumpy old man. However, being able to see the dark side of things in our present day needn't make one a bitter person who is constantly cross with younger generations. Quite the opposite. If there is much in the world that is bad right now, it's not the fault of the young. It's due to the mistakes of older generations, clearly, including my own. I often reflect on the many good things, blessings, and benefits which I had the luck to enjoy as a child, adolescent, or young adult, way back in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And that makes me all the more aware of the daunting challenges faced by today's children, adolescents, and young adults. This weekend, we mark a festival Purim, which is all about a very young woman, Esther, who confronts great danger to herself in order to protect others. For whatever reasons, Esther, the new queen of Persia, has concealed her Jewish identity. Yet she it is who learns of a murderous plot against her people. She knows that it is a capital crime for anyone, unbidden, to approach the king, her husband, to make a request. She fasts along with the young women of her court. The book of Esther says nothing of any praying or any role played by God. The focus is on Esther alone, purified or humbled or maybe sharpened in her determination by her fasting. Esther steps into the presence of the king to plead for her people. He responds with love and, at least as importantly, with respect. And thus, as the rabbis have long ago recognized, she, Esther, becomes the savior of her people. Amidst all the hilarity and razzmatazz of Purim, it's important to celebrate and honor this young woman's courage, the purity of her conscience, her humility, and her commitment to doing the right thing. It's fascinating, isn't it, what Rabbi Barden was just saying there about respect for others and being nastier. One would be forgiven for thinking that we live in a world that seems to be much more at ease with criticizing others without actually analyzing our own faults first. Anyway, thank you to Rabbi James Barden there from Sharai Tzedek, North London Reform Synagogue, with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Gabby Jacobs and Alison de Gaulle. Best of luck to them.
Rabbi Jonathan Romain, remember his book, Confessions of a Rabbi, to Anthea Jackson, as well as Ben Mason and Abby Broido. Thanks also to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Tony Honigberg and Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And you'll also find an option to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.